0: Alright, well thank you guys for being here with us. We know with a busy weekend like Memorial Day, you could be a million other places, but you're here with us. And that's not lost on us. We also realized some of you guys were probably going to go for a hike or the park, and then it rained. So the weather worked out for us. So we're so glad you're here. Uh, if you're, it doesn't always work out for us. On nice days, we get it. You're like, oh, I'll maybe listen later. So if you're watching online, we're so glad you guys are tuning in as well or watching this later. Uh, just a quick reminder for you guys. I know summer is officially about to start. Uh, it's kind of the start of summer weekend or summer uh, months and so uh, we know a lot of you guys go on vacations, uh, go camping, have campers, boats, go to the lake. I'm actually heading back down to the lake as soon as I get done here. Uh, So just a reminder we have Thursday services at seven o'clock all summer long and so you don't have to miss out on being a part of Journey over the summer if you've got a busy summer, busy plans. And if you come this Thursday uh, we will provide dinner for you and your family. We have a free taco bar on this Thursday at seven o'clock. So we We are in the second part of this... uh Pilled series. And basically the idea behind this is that Paul gave us a list last week of fruit of the Spirit, these ideas to be able to look and kind of gauge if God is working in our life and what that looks like and all those type of things. And some of us we get in these seasons where it's like it feels like maybe God is distant or maybe God's not as close as we think he should be. And so Paul kind of says, okay, so here are some of the evidences that God is kind of moving in your heart and in your mind, but also around you. And so we're going to take over the next nine week and just look at these one by one. Kind of peel back some layers of our hearts and our minds and kind of take a look at these. And so uh, this week uh, is probably the big one. And so this is the one I think the rest of them kind of feed off of. And we are going to talk about love. Now, if you grew up in church, you know that love is supposed to be a big part of what we do around here. Uh, we believe that love is the first word that was spoken and it'll be the last word that's spoken because God is love. In fact, the writer Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's writing a letter and he says this. So these three things continue forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, all right? And so what we want to do is we want to kind of get a working definition for what love is, how it applies when we think about God, but also how it applies to us and how we interact with each other. So the word love is an interesting word in the English language because we use it for so many different contexts, and we use it in so many different ways, Okay, and, and so for example, um, I love the Green Bay Packers, right? It's getting harder to love them, but I still do. I, I love the Kentucky Wildcats. I love the University of Kentucky. I know some of you do not, and that's okay. We still think that Jesus loves you too. And um, I do. I love them. I love buffalo wings. Um, I will eat buffalo wings every meal of the day if I could. Um, I love tacos. Um, I love you guys. I love live music um i i love my wife you know um, now, the hope is that I love all those things differently, right? It would be kind of weird if I love my wife the same way I love tacos, right? Like, it's, it would not be good, or if I loved the Packers the same way that, you know. So, we have these contexts, but we know what people say when they say the word love. Um, and so, we just kind of use the, the, the contextual clues and be like, okay, he's talking about this type of love when he uses it. Now, in the Greek language, they did something a little different. It's a very expansive language. Um, and so, they would actually create different words to kind of use the same word. So, love. And so if you studied Greek, you know there's seven, maybe even eight different words that they would use for love, and there would be context as to which word they were talking about. So uh, there's seven or eight of them. The three most familiar that maybe you've heard of before is phileia, uh, and so that one is where we get the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philia is the word they would use for like brotherly love or like friendship love, so that's one of the words. Uh, the other word that many of us are familiar with is the word eros. Eros would be um, romantic. It's where we get the word erotic, okay? Uh, cover your ears, kids. I've already said it, though. But um, So uh, that's that word. And then the word that we use most often, especially in the church culture, uh, is agape. Agape is the idea of universal love or the love of God. So for today, uh, there's actually four other ones, but we won't get into all that for sake of time. So today, what I want to talk about is kind of this agape and philea, like this idea of brotherly love, how we love each other, and also the love of God. So that's what love is when we think about the Bible. So what's a good working definition? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul gives us, it's referred to as the love chapter. Uh, So if you've ever been to a wedding, there's a good chance that you've heard this in a wedding. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag and is not proud. Love is not rude, it is not selfish, and does not get upset with others. Love does not count up wrongs that have been done. Love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices over truth. Love patiently accepts all things. It always trusts, always hopes, and always endures. Now, if you want to go through a really painful exercise, but also a very eye-opening exercise, and if you want to do this with your spouse later, I do offer marriage counseling as well, um, what you do is you replace the word love with your name, are you patient and kind? Do you count up a record of wrongs? Do you do your best not to get upset with others? All right. And and so it's just kind of this idea of what this looks like. So um, basically, the idea of love, the way we see it in the Bible, is kind of this sacrificial love. It's this idea of putting others' needs before yourselves, being selfless in your thinking, and all of that. Okay, so there's a definition for us, and it's a great chapter if you've never read it. So um, the next part we have to figure out is how important is it to love? Okay, so how important is this? So when when we think about all the things, how important is this? So in Matthew 22, Jesus is talking. These Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious leaders, are trying to trip him up. And so we kind of are walking into the middle of this conversation. Here's what it says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, because they've already asked them questions, he's already shut them down. The Pharisees are now, it's their turn. So they're going to get together and they're going to, one of them, an expert in the law. So like a religious lawyer, he's the guy that makes sure everybody is following all the rules and doing everything they're supposed to. And he understands the law. He looks at Jesus and he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So what we have to understand, and some of you have heard me say this before, um, when they ask this question, and most of us, when we think of the law, we think of 10, the 10 commandments. You've probably heard of that even if you've never been in church before. 10 commandments. Here's the good news and the bad news. There's 10, okay? They're pretty easy to remember, um, but you've already broken some of them, right? Probably already broke some of them today, right? And so we can't even keep 10, okay? But if you understand Old Testament law, there's actually 613, All right, so if you can't keep 10, there's a pretty good chance you're not keeping 613. So he wants to know of all of these laws, of all of these things that God has told us, which one is the greatest or maybe even maybe the most important. So Jesus replies to him in verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now, this is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, this idea. It's an old kind of saying, an old kind of understanding. It comes from what we call the Shema. The Shema was a prayer that they would say every morning, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, it's kind of like this grounding kind of idea of loving God. Now, if all there is to the equation is that you have to love God, great. That's actually really good news. And the reason that's good news and the reason that we like some of that is because if all I have to do is love God, here's the thing. Nobody really knows how I'm doing, right? I can show up at church, I, I can sing the songs. I can amen or nod my head, which none of you do. I, I don't get offended. It's okay. Um, except for some of the Pentecostal background people. Um, I, I can give a little bit of money, you know. I can, I can wear the shirts, you know. Um, I, I can know Bible verses, right? I can put a stickers, you know. So if all I have to do is love God, sign me up. Because nobody really knows how I'm doing. But Jesus isn't done. And he says, the second is like it. Now this is important because what we do sometimes is we want to say trick the language. The second is like it. We want to say like one is love God, two is love people. Jesus doesn't say that. He says they're the same. It's like it. It's equally as important. We're going to see this later as it plays out. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Everything you know, everything you've studied, everything you've devoted yourself to, okay? He says all of these things depend on these and hang on these. To which we say, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, apparently, Jesus has never met some of the neighbors that I've had over the years. (laughs) Because if he'd met some of my neighbors, he would realize that sometimes this is difficult. Now, I've had some really great neighbors. Some of our, my former neighbors, some of my current neighbors, actually come to church here, and they're all great. I have to say that because they're here. But uh, no, they are. And, uh, but I've had bad neighbors. We've all had bad neighbors. We've all had issues with that. But it actually gets worse because the word neighbor that Jesus is using here in this idea, he's not just talking about like the four, five, six houses around you, or maybe like even in your little like neighborhood. That the word neighbor for them is a much broader thing. It's actually referring to the community that you live in, the community that you do life in. It refers to the people that you would go to church or synagogue with, it refers to the people in your workplace. And so if all I got to do is love like four or five people that kind of touch my property, like, I mean, it might be difficult, but I can do that. But when Jesus kind of breaks this circle bigger, which is the context he's talking about, it gets much tougher. And the reason it gets tougher for us to do this, and the reason it's so hard, is because at the end of the day, people are difficult, aren't they? Now, you amen that, but hold on, okay, because um, you are people, and so, just so you know, okay, case has told you, and I mean this in love, you are difficult. You are. And I know that, that we want to pretend like we're not, but we're difficult, right? We all are, me included. See, if you have a hard time creating, sustaining friendships and relationships, and there seems to be tension and drama in your life, and I'm not saying it's all you, okay, but just remember, there's always one common denominator in all of the tension and drama that you have in your life. It's you, So what we could do is we could just learn to apply this about let's all agree to stop being so difficult, and then it would be easier to love each other, right? And we can pray and go home, and that would be the end. Um, But there's more to it, all right? If only it was that easy. Now, the reason this is really important for us to understand as Christians living today is because the movement that eventually changed and shaped the world, The thing that got it from Jesus and 12 guys and a couple of ladies in an upper room to eventually a place where it changed the Roman Empire, which then changed the shape of the Western world, which then eventually spread to the rest of the world, today where there's two to three billion Christians in the world, to where a bunch of you guys who are white, mostly Gentiles, in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, who have almost very little to do with a first century Jewish rabbi, um, there's some stuff there, right, that's happened. And the things that have happened all happened because they understood and actually applied what it meant to love one another. It was the secret sauce. It was the thing that made the church almost unstoppable at first. And it all began when Jesus gathered his disciples, and we rushed by this, and if you've grown up in church, you've heard this before. But what's fascinating is of all the things that Jesus taught that eventually get recorded and written down, one of the things that's fascinating about all of this Is Jesus very rarely gives any commands? In fact, he gives a lot of really important things, and he says, "Do this," and you should do this, and all of this. But in John chapter thirteen verse thirty-four, he gets real specific, and he says, "A new command I give you: love one another. Love one another." The last series we just wrapped up out of at the table, this idea that everybody is welcome at the table, regardless of your background, your social, economic, regardless of your race or where you grew up or any of those things. None of those things matter. Everybody's welcome at the table. And when I was reading that, I was kind of rereading the Gospels, which is an important exercise you should do every once in a while. And what I realized was that Jesus never had those people. You see, what we do oftentimes is we put people into categories and into sections and and we can say things like, well, if I have to love these people, you know, that's okay. And if I have to love these people, that's okay. But all of us, and let's be honest, all of us in the back of our mind, even though we don't like to tap into and admit it, all of us kind of have sometimes those people, those people that it's difficult for us to like. And especially now that Jesus is talking about love, like that would be really difficult for us to love them. But Jesus doesn't have that. Jesus declares all human beings. And in fact, what's fascinating is even these, these, we kind of, in the scriptures, we see that these Pharisees and Sadducees, they keep giving Jesus problems. We also see that some of the Pharisees and Sadducees become followers of Jesus, and he actually respects them and shows love to them. And so even these people that we think are against Jesus, Jesus has these moments where he invites them into the conversation. Jesus loves people, no qualifiers. He loves people because they're people and they were created in God's image. What's fascinating is after he teaches this, this idea of a new command, I give you to love one another, he he finishes that section by saying, by this, by the way that you love is how the world will know that you're my follower. Not your theology, not how many Bible verses you can quote, not what type of shirts you wear or any of these things. The way that the world will know that you are my followers is by the way that you love. So imagine these first Jesus followers. It mainly starts off as Jewish converts. It mostly starts off as these Jewish people that that have kind of embraced the teaching and the message of Jesus. And and then it kind of spreads around the Mediterranean rim. And it starts off mainly Jewish, but then it kind of starts to invoke the Gentile people, especially as Paul gets involved and starts to become a missionary to the Gentile people. And eventually makes itself into the Greek world and then into the Roman world. And and these people, what's fascinating as as the gospel spreads and as the movement of Jesus spreads, um, you have. Have all these people who come from different backgrounds and different different ideologies, different social and economic experiences. I mean, there's parts that you can say church history where you would have people that were enslaved, whether indentured or foreslaved, in same congregations with the people that have enslaved them, which is insane. And you have poor and rich, and you have all of these different things. But what you have in common is they understood this message of Jesus and it changed and shaped them. It changed the way that they viewed themselves and the way they viewed people around them and, and all of these different things. And so in spite of all their different worldviews, when they allowed the love of God to become the filter, not only in which they understood their relationship with God, but also their relationship with each other, it changed things. John He was one of Jesus' apostles. Uh, We believe John became a follower of Jesus pretty early on. Um, in his life, maybe 14, 15 years old. It, it's fascinating. We think of like the apostles and disciples as these old wise men. It was Jesus and like a bunch of kids, right? And 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 they're walking around and, and they're learning all this stuff. And so John's 14, maybe 15 years old. Um, we believe John lives the longest of all of the apostles. He eventually gets exiled to this isle of Patmos, and he writes these letters and he writes these, these what we would call books now. Um, but one of the things he writes is, is these letters, and in first John he says this. Now he's experienced a lot. He's seen a lot. He's seen his friends be executed. He's now himself exiled because of his faith. So he would have a lot of reason to have pent-up hostility. Listen to what he says. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Now, if you don't hear or remember anything else that I say the rest of this day, listen to this. All of us get a choice as if we want to follow Jesus. But once you choose to follow Jesus, you do not get to choose what that looks like. He makes it clear. One day, Jesus is, is these religious experts, again, that they, they kind of corner him, and they keep doing this pattern of this thing. And, and so one of them, he, he looks at Jesus, and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so just like them, um, they thought that following Jesus was about the end, not the journey. And, and so just like many of us, the reason we follow Jesus is we want to go to heaven one day. Well, they wanted to inherit eternal life. And And so he says, What must I actually do? And so Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? Now, amen, again, remember, he's not talking about 10. He's talking about 613, a lot of rules, a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts. He says, how do you understand this? How do you interpret it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind. Remember, this is the Shema prayer. This wasn't unique to Jesus. Uh, this is a kind of a saying that would go around. And he even adds on to it, so you love God. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus replies to him, right, do this and you will live. So if the conversation ends there, this guy's okay. Love God, love people, I understand that. But here's what the man says. He says to Jesus, so who's my neighbor? Because what he wants to know is tell me exactly who it is that I have to love. Like if you just give me a list of 100 people, like I can probably pull that off, all right? And so Jesus, when, when pushed, because he, he wants them to understand the broad spectrum of love, Jesus launches into, if not one of the most famous of his stories. In fact, it's a story that almost all of us are familiar with, even if you've never been to church or read the Bible. And the story he launches into is what we would refer to as the Good Samaritan. And so what he says, he says, so, okay, so you want to know who you're supposed to love and how you're supposed to love them. Okay, great question. Here's the story. So he says there's this man that's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, there's all kinds of scholars and stuff that'll tell you that that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was actually a very dangerous road, and there's not a lot of good that happens on that road. And so we could ask the question, why is this guy even on this road? But it doesn't even matter at this point. So he's on this road, and the Bible says that eventually these robbers, these attackers, they come and they take him, and they beat him up, and they take him up, uh, take his clothes and take everything from him and leave him for dead. And so he's in a really bad state. And and so he's laying there, half dead, bleeding, you know, and and Jesus says, and then along came a priest. It kind of starts like a joke, you know, like, and the priest walked in, you know? And so, uh, so the priest comes up. Now, if you're this guy, and I don't know his conscious state, but you have to imagine, right? And I'm not saying I'm the best person in the world, but if you got abandoned out here on the street and I walked up you might be like, all right, he's going to stop and help, right? Like, I might not. But you know, you would hope that I would, right? And I would hope that I would. So, the priest walks up. So the guy's got to be feeling pretty good. Here comes the priest. And 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 so he's the priest sees the guy, the guy maybe sees the priest. And then there's this moment. And Jesus tells us that the priest um what he does is he has this moment where he realizes something. See, In their world, if the priest was to touch this guy, helping him up or binding his wounds, and he gets any blood on him or anything like that, he's now ceremonially unclean. Which means that whatever priestly duties he had to do, he no longer can do because now he's ceremonially unclean. And so because he loves God so much, he's a priest, he can't help this guy because he loves God so much, you can't help him. So the Bible says that he just, he passes on by on the other side and walks around. So if you're this guy, you gotta be like, all right, seriously. And the crowd's probably like, you know, okay, he's a priest, we get it. Like he, he loves God more than anything. and So then Jesus says, okay, well, it's gonna get worse. So a Levite comes up. Now the context of a Levite, if you ever read the story, you may not understand what the importance of why he said Levite next. Levites were the ones who were the helpers in the church. Like they were the ones that helped the priests. They were the ones that helped the people as they approached the synagogue and the temple to be orderly and they would help people and they would do all these things. So by definition, a Levite is like a helper. Like that's what they're known for. And so here comes this religious guy who's also a helper. And here's a guy in need of help. So it seems like, well, okay, the priest, we understand. So the Levite, surely he's going to stop. But here's the problem. Maybe the Levite's on his way to the temple. And if he's on his way to the temple and he bends down and he touches this guy or he helps this guy, now all of a sudden he's ceremonially unclean. And so again, he loves God so much that he loves God so much that he loves him so much he actually can't help this guy. And so they're all sitting there. And, and then there's a third character that enters the scene. And this would be the Samaritan. Now, we refer to the story as the Good Samaritan. What you have to understand, Jesus didn't title these stories. It wasn't like he was like, and now I'll tell you the Good Samaritan. Like, this is stuff we added later, okay? These are things that help so we can read the Bible and all that. That wasn't in there. But if he had titled this and he referred to it as the Good Samaritan, what you have to understand is that every Jewish person standing there would have been like, there's no such thing. It's an oxymoron. So what happened is, is hundreds and hundreds of years before, um, at one time when the people, uh, the people of God got invaded, Israel got invaded, um, some of the Samaritan-type people, they, they stayed behind, and they, um, they, they mixed with some of the people that invaded them. And, and so there was all this like, cultural stuff. Um, it eventually became, and the best way to describe it would be a race issue. Um, between these two groups of people, I mean, the Jews hated the Samaritans. There's sayings where they would consider them lower than the dogs. Um, there's, there's all these things. So, anytime that you see Samaritan and Jesus and they're interacting, there's not only this story, but there's the woman of the Samaritan woman at the well. Like this would make people gasp when they heard these stories. This is how much they hated these people. And so the Samaritan comes up on the road and sees a Jewish guy. Jesus says that the Samaritan, when he sees the state of this man, he has compassion in his heart. And he gets the guy together, and he binds up his wounds, and gives him some wine. And then he puts the man on his horse, and he takes him to this inn. And he goes to this inn, and he goes to the innkeeper, and he says, here, here's, my, here's this guy, and he's in a bad state. Um, I'm going to stay with him. And, and so he stays with him for the night, but then he's got to get on the road again. So he goes to the innkeeper and gives him some money, and he says, hey, just keep this guy here um, for as long as he needs. And he, he says, and if this money isn't enough, he says, whenever I come back, I'll give you more, and we'll settle up, and we'll be good. And so what would have been perceived as an enemy sees this man in need, has compassion, and takes care of him. And so Jesus ends the story, and he looks at this religious leader who just wanted to be defined, who's my neighbor? And he says, well, you tell me, who is the neighbor? Who is the man that showed love? And he can't even say it. He can't even say the Samaritan. He says the third one, because he hates him so much. But it gets worse and worse, because it's not just the story that he tells Jesus, and probably his most controversial teaching, he says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Now, I don't know if I have any enemies. Um, I don't have any enemies. I, my favorite song by the Yvette Brothers, my favorite song ever, it's going be played at my funeral, is No Hard Feelings. And it's all about how I don't have enemies. And so I, I really don't have enemies. I, I try to generally see, um, you know, like people and that type of thing. And, 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 um, and I'm a peacemaker too. So, uh, so we have the, this idea. But maybe some of us have enemies, okay? Um, or, or maybe a better way to describe this is people we just don't really like. Um, or, again, back to that category of those people. But I say to you, love those people. He goes on to say in verse 31, do to others as you would like them to do to you. And and, and so the reason that for a lot of us we have an enemy or somebody we don't like is because they're not doing for us what we wish they would do for us, right? They're they're not seeing the world we wish we would see to them. So, So he keeps going and he says this, if you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Everybody does that, right? Everybody loves the people that love them. Even the, the, the sinners or other terms, I say the pagans do that. But you've been called to something different. One of the things I, I feel like that I'm learning as I mature um, is how important it is to love even when it's really difficult. Even when you don't receive love back. And th- we live in a world in a culture where especially, this is, this is true a lot of us, that, that we want to love people, but the problem is, I don't know if that person will love me back, or they'll respect me, or whatever. And here's the thing, there is this, uh, this misnomer in the American church, and especially in the circles that a lot of us run in, um, and this is a this is problem with us, um, is that we think that we have to be able to be accepted and respected in order to play out these principles, we, we think that we have to have power and authority. And, and here's the thing. You have to understand this. This is not biblically defendable. It's not. All of these stories that you read, including the stories that John tells us and Paul tells us and Peter tells us and all of these things we see in Jesus, this comes from oppressed people. It comes from people that it's incredibly difficult for them to be Jesus followers in ways that you and I would probably never fully understand. And yet they continue to love in spite of those things. And it wasn't based on political power or cultural influence or success. Actually, history is contrary to that. It was based on this idea that they understood that God loved them. And his desire was that they would love others. There's this great verse in Micah 8. It's actually on our, in our living room on our wall. And uh, it says this. It says... Um, now, O oh, people, so he's talking to Israel, he's talking to the, God's people. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Except when it comes to. And so I guess the question is, well, what's, what's your accept? Let me put that back up. So, so what's, your, what's your accept when it comes to them, that group of people? Or that situation. What's your accept? And just so you know, um, that's not actually in the Bible. The accept when it comes to I just added that part. Um, all it says is that you are to do. Some of you are like what to do? What is right? To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There, there's no exception. That's what he wants. That's the love that's spoken of. In Romans five eight, Paul writes this. He says. But God demonstrates his own love for us. So he, he, he doesn't just tell us through do this. He's going to show us. While we were still sinners, if you, if you go down a couple of verses later, if you read this later, um, it says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. This is Memorial Day weekend, and, and so I'm not trying to like, tell you you don't know what Memorial Day weekend is or whatever. But um, Memorial Day weekend, the reason we, we have this weekend, um, and we will remember everyone that's passed, don't get me wrong. But the reason we have this as a holiday is because we want to remember the people who passed or died during the service of our country so that we can experience the freedoms that we have. And so that's why it became a holiday, is to actually celebrate and to honor the men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice of themselves because of love of their country and love of the people who live within this country. And this is the greatest sacrifice someone can give, is to give fully of themselves even to that point. Jesus, he talks about this in John fifteen thirteen. He says this, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what the people that we celebrate and honor this weekend have done. But that's also what we have to be reminded of that God has done for us. So like 20, 25 years later, uh, after Jesus, there's this movement kind of forming in in Rome, and it's these Christians, and it spread to Rome, which is like the epicenter kind of of the world at this point in time. Um, It's incredibly difficult for them to be followers of Jesus, They are constantly persecuted. They are constantly um, being uh, hurt, I mean, killed. We we have all these famous stories. It's on the heels of Nero Circus, which is going to be this major persecution of of Christians. And and, and so all of this is going on. And and so if anybody has the reason to be bitter or to hate or or to any of these things or, or to respond in violence or whatever it is, it would be some of these people living in Rome who are constantly being harassed and hurt and oppressed. Just because of their beliefs and just because of what they believe that God has done. And so, Paul, he's writing to them this letter, but he's also trying to encourage them. And in Romans 13, he says this, and it's fascinating. He says this to these people Let no debt remain outstanding. So, we live in a world where we feel like we, we owe it to people. Like, has anybody ever done anything to you and you feel like you owe it to them to do something back and not in a good way? You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, you fouled me, I fouled you. We had uh, soccer team a couple weeks ago. Uh, one of the kids, the team we were playing was real rough and um, they kept pushing our kids. It didn't matter, we were winning like 12-0. And uh, so I just had to that in there. And so uh, they're pushing our kids and one of our kids, he pushes the other, uh, another kid back. I said, don't do that. I said, we, we don't do that. It doesn't matter what they did to us. We, we don't do that. And um, so, so we feel like we have to owe it to people to do stuff when they do it to us. And he says, let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. The only thing that you should be worried about is how we love each other. In fact, Jesus would probably say it this way, and Paul would say it. um, if, if If you want to show appreciation for how much God has loved you, the best way to show appreciation is to actually love other people. He goes on to say this in in verses 8 and 9. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Whatever other commands there are may be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason we don't pay attention to that is because it's so clarifying, it's scary, isn't it? That in order for me to be the best version of myself and the best follower of Jesus that I can be, it's all about how we love. Not how good we are, not how right we are, how we love. This is what Jesus taught and modeled, and everything else is secondary. What Paul just said is the rest of Scripture is commentary on how you love. And the warning should be this, that we should never be tempted or dared to take a passage, a verse, or a story to use it in such a way in which it justifies us unloving someone because it doesn't exist. Paul will say this in Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. And I love love this verse because here's why. Um, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your parents later or Google it. And, um, but for them, this was like the dividing. This was north versus south. Like this was, this was the issue. Like this was It's so weird, but this was the issue. And you can see this over and over in the New Testament. Um, this was the biggest issue the early church faced. And here's what Paul responds with. None of that matters. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love the only thing is faith expressing itself through love imagine a world where people were skeptical of what we believed but envious of how well we treated each other once upon a time in a culture much like today people did that and it changed the world it changed things for some different groups of people um it changed things. If you, are, if you are a woman, you have to understand historically, culturally, um, when this is happening, you did not have rights and value in the society. And this idea of loving people fully, it changed all of that. Children, we talked about a few weeks ago with Rusty, um, children did not have the status and culture that they have today. We would do anything for our kids. We put them uh, as one of the highest values it wasn't always like that. People that were enslaved, people that were economically disadvantaged, social outcasts, this idea of love one another changed that for everybody. See, here's what we know. Everybody wants to be loved. Even the people that say they don't want to be loved, they're dumb. They want to be loved. Everybody wants to be loved. Um, and so here's the thing. It is our desire. And so here's what I want to say. Um, this is how important this is. Jesus put it all on the line. And here's the thing I want to say to some of us in this room. And maybe not you, but maybe this is for somebody. Um, Because of what you've seen and what you've experienced, and you think that Christians are narrow-minded, greedy, judgmental, you know, I hope everybody else goes to hell that's not like us or agrees with us, right? That's the type of reputation we get. And if I'd seen what you've seen or heard what you heard or experienced what you experienced or been around the church that you grew up in, I would probably feel the same way. So I don't judge you for being there. But here's my hope. And I know that maybe even someone like me will never be able to fully redefine Christianity for you in such a way that it'll change your mind completely. But I hope with all that you've seen and experienced and your hesitation to embrace anything Christian that you don't actually miss Jesus. That you don't miss the love that he had. The love that he put on display, the way in which he presented a new concept and a new idea for the world of how much he loves people, that he loves you, and he sees potential in you and wants a better life for you. And I don't say that because I think I'm better or smarter or wiser than anybody. I don't. I say that because as I read the New Testament and specifically the Gospels, I see the love of Jesus and the love that he had and the mission that he had For the church and what it was supposed to come. The other reason I think it's really important that you don't miss out on Jesus, because God is love, is this. See, we all have this desire to be loved. It's deep down inside us. It's within the context of what makes us who we are. But there's another thing that we also have in common. And another thing we all experience. And that's fear. Fear of what's next, fear of the unknown. Fear of being rejected, fear of being alone, fear of getting it wrong, fear of putting ourselves out there. We all have these different fears and these different ideas. They bother us and they worry us and they fill us with anxiety and stress. But there's this beautiful idea and concept that comes out of the love of God. And, And it's this. It's this idea that what if we believe that love, not fear, gets the last word? John... He's experienced and seen a lot. He says this, where God's love is, there is no fear because God's perfect love drives out fear. So to quote the recently late, great Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? The answer is everything. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you. God, my fear, my hope is, not my fear, my hope is that we will embrace the love that you give to be people that live out this love, that allow this love that you have for us to penetrate our hearts and our minds, um, and not just to know the love that you have for us, but the love that you have for the one and others all around us. God, this idea is something that um, changed the world. And God, if we just started with that same idea of how we treat each other and how we respond to each other, and we just took a moment and paused and thought about how we would want to be treated in those moments or how you would define neighbor and how a neighbor should be treated in those moments, God, that 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 might change not everything all at once, but just slowly but surely change communities and cultures and neighborhoods and friendships and workplaces and all of these different things that we want to see better. And so God, my prayer is that we would take seriously this call to love that it would be the thing that we're known for, the thing that defines us, not just as individuals, but as a collective. And so God, for somebody in this room that maybe's experienced everything but love, my prayer is that in these next few moments, as we sing or as they reflect on these words, that they'll believe them and they'll know the love that you have for them and they'll experience the love in this room. So we love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray, amen. amen. Every week we come to this time where we celebrate the love that God puts on display through us, for us. And so we do that through communion. Jesus says through the breaking of his body and the pouring of his blood that he's gonna do this thing. And it's the hope that we have, but it's also the act of love that one would lay down his life for his friends. And that's what he did for us. So every week we celebrate that. And so as the band starts to play, we ask for you to respond accordingly.